0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We help clinicians apply a person-centered approach to their practice. We have one-on-one and group mentoring sessions to help clinicians feel more confident in navigating some of the uncertainties when working with people in pain. And we're excited for our newly revamped courses. So if you're interested, check out our website, tkex.org, and our Facebook discussion group for more. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by head organizer of the San Diego Pain Summit and an amazing human, Rajam Roos. It's lovely to have you here. I, was, I had the pleasure of attending the San Diego Pain Summit in person this year, 2023, with my partner and can only highly recommend it. And, and it was an amazing experience. So Rajam, I'm very, very keen to dive into a bit of you and your story. So thank you for well, joining thank you. us.
1: Thanks for having me, Daniel. And I appreciate the kind words about the summit. I'm glad that you and your partner had a good time and felt like it was worth that long flight from Australia to San Diego and back.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. The, uh, the long flight was so worth it. So the first question that I ask all our guests, Rajam, I'd love to hear him putting you on the spot because you, you often do such a great job at shining the spotlight towards other people and presenters and such. You, what's your story?
1: It's a, that's a such an interesting question because I have so many stories. <laughs> but, but, the, but I'll just start with, with what pretty much led up to the creation of the summit, which is I was a massage therapist for sixteen years, and <clears throat> you know we don't learn much about the nervous system or brain or anything like that. And um, I read a book, you know. Um, I can't, I think it's called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. And that's when I first learned about brain plasticity. And so then I started reading other similar books, like I read The Sensitive Nervous System and Um The Body Has a Mind of Its Own by the Blakeslees. And it kind of just got me on this road to like, because I was wondering how was massage helping people in pain? I wasn't really, I wasn't really buying the whole changing the state of the tissues and this and that, but something was happening, but what was it? <laughs> so then that led me, you know, learning more about the nervous system and the brain. And, um, and then, you know, I finally realized um, the reason why, you know, I'd had such good success was because I was already doing things like a therapeutic alliance, being consistent in my work, listening to the client, validating them. So um that kind of led into you know, the creation of the summit. So there's that, that part of my history.
0: <clears throat> it's uh, awesome to hear that curiosity in, in your practice as to why things were working and um, finding out some of the, the reasons behind the amazing results and outcomes that we see. And I could see uh, from so many other people's experiences that the, the reasons can be so different and it's fascinating how you had your resources and then um, it kind of led you to learn a bit more there. So um, I'm curious what what helped uh, guide you towards the nervous system-related narratives because um, there's a ton of other possible explanations yeah. that like any clinician, myself included, can can go to.
1: Yeah, well, it was actually it was pretty tough because... Um... As I started learning more about um, neural tissue, and of course, I'm not saying everything is about neural tissue and all that, but, I, but it was, was it was like a hole in my training, so I was filling that with that information. And to be honest, I actually went through a few months of a very dark period in my professional career where I was thinking... Okay, well, then what's the point of what I'm doing? <laughs> like like I it was I've never been so depressed about my. I was like, I spent all these years doing massage. I'm not really doing anything. How am I helping people? And so uh, what got me out of that was to realize was actually I, I was helping people. I just it just wasn't what was helping wasn't what I thought was helping. So um, you know that that was I did go there was a little bit of a learning learning growth there, Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah, it's such a common uh, recount of the existential crisis that we have. I think it's from what we've been taught, and we've been kind of conditioned and led down a path, and then suddenly uh, the, the shock and the realization that maybe some of what we've been taught in the past and that we were personally holding on to um, may not be as correct or as reliable as we once thought so that there is that uh, grieving process is what I experienced myself. I'm thinking that exercise can just be the cure-all, the panacea for everything at all times mm-hmm. and just to get people loaded and, and strong. Um, so yeah I, I appreciate you, you sharing because it's such a common experience I'm sure you've heard from many clinicians and it's interesting hearing the parallels. With the massage therapy industry and the exercise industry as well that that kind of uh, that, that dark time as you said mm-hmm. and then finding out that the light at the end of the tunnel that there is hope i think that's super helpful as well to hear that mm-hmm. you were you very much helping people for a variety of reasons
1: yeah and it's just anytime you any, and that's the hard that's what makes um bringing in new information into your life difficult because it makes you really question what you were doing before and that can be tough you know to go through that introspective period I think is really tough and probably scary too so
0: I think that's important I I personally sometimes forget how tough it is and how tough it was for myself so it helps to have reminders of the the work and the the work and the effort that it takes to reflect, um, and hence the value of some of the work that you do in the community that you've built over the years through the San Diego Pain Summit. So if you don't mind sharing us the, the story, what, why did you start it in the first place? What was the origin?
1: So I, um, I didn't plan on doing massage indefinitely, but um, you know I, I was looking towards um, retiring from massage therapy. But then I still wanted to do something to bring in an income, so I thought, well, maybe I can organize workshops, and um, uh, fortunately, as luck would have it, somebody wanted to come teach a workshop out here, and a friend of mine who lives in Minnesota contacted me and said, hey, so-and-so wants to come teach a workshop, but they don't want to come to Minnesota, they said they'd go to San Diego. Canada. So I was like, okay. So they basically guided me into what I needed to do to set up the workshop. And then once I did that, I was like, oh, this isn't very difficult. So I just started organizing workshops. And one of the workshops I organized, um, the instructor, several of the students who were new graduates uh, from PT school, physical therapy program. And the instructor was asking them if they had ever heard of um, Patrick Wall or Ronald Melzack or you know, Lorimer Mosley or any of these pain researchers. And, and one of the students was like, well, yeah, we're learning this stuff, but I don't know how to use it. And that's when I had the light bulb moment. I mean, it was a huge light bulb. I never had a light bulb moment before, (laughs) really. And that was huge. And I was like, oh, I could start, I could have a conference and I can feature, um, at the time, this was pre-Facebook. So there was a, um, online chat group called Soma Simple that had a lot of really interesting discussions going on and I I immediately knew who I wanted to bring to the stage because who had been bringing these interesting discussions that I felt like needed a spotlight on them in the you know in the clinical world um but I knew that I needed to get a big name because <clears throat> I was a nobody really I mean I'm not associated with the organization I'm not you know I'm just this you know massage therapist working in San you know so um I I presented the idea to Lorna Mosley and he thought it was a really good idea. And so then he came out. And of course, once he agreed, once he was like, Yeah, I'll be the keynote, you know, I could ask all the other speakers. And they were all like, Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely leveraging you
0: the know? the yeah, social status kidding. and brand of of Larma.
1: Yeah. And he, and it was a, and that was and he was very generous. He gave two 90 minute talks um but he really helped kick the whole thing off because without that uh name recognition I'm not sure if even half the speakers would have even agreed to talk that spoke that year so
0: and originally it started off as presentation so tell us a little bit more about the the general format and how it's evolved and and changed uh, over the years for for our listeners
1: Yeah so it actually started off it was three days of talks and then the final at the end um, what I had is that if all the talks were 45 minutes 15 minute Q&A and then um, if your question wasn't answered or you weren't able to call in your question you wrote it down on a piece of paper and put it into a jar in the back of the room and then at the very end of the third day um, I did it handed them out to each speaker and they chose which questions they wanted to answer. So then they came up on stage and, and answered the remaining questions. Um, and then, um, people kind of said that they wish there'd been some hands-on stuff. So I started bringing, so the next year I brought in like a couple half day workshops and that seemed to go really well. So then I turned it into, um, four days of workshops and followed by the two day conference. Now, um, I'm changing it again to now three days of um, to three days, and I'm doing away with the pre-conference workshops. and the the Friday will now be like interactive short sessions. and then the the following two days will be um, you know the typical forty five minute fifteen minute q and a.
0: the um it's it's so hard. i'm I'm not as experienced as you in the kind of uh, course space CPD. Um, continuing education organization there's so much behind the scenes it's it's fascinating to hear the 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 feedback and what people take and what people value most Uh, and uh, I heard a podcast where you mentioned one of the first things you did was find out what people don't like about conferences (laughs) yeah 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 could you tell us a bit more because I think that's almost like a scientific process of what (laughs) not to do let's test it out so we we know at least roughly what doesn't work well
1: Yeah, because I had, you know, like I said, I had never organized a conference before um, or taken courses on it or anything. So I just, I thought, well, let me find out what people hate about conferences and then start there. And um, there wasn't really, most of the complaints were like across the board and there wasn't really a consensus in complaints, but the only one that actually had several multiple of the same complaints was not being able to see people's names so because the names is written small and then all the crap about like where they work and what state they're from and all this and that and um and people were, were complaining about how embarrassing it was to forget someone's name while you were talking to them but not let them see your eyes glance down at their neck at their neck wall, at their name tag you know so that's why I decided to just put names on the um on the neck wallets, just the first name and last name. And that actually worked out really well uh, because the first after the first year, actually, I had someone come up to me and said, she said she had been sitting next to like the head of the director of a Mayo Clinic in Texas or something, and she was like, if I had known who the, that person was, I wouldn't have had the nerve to talk to them. So I thought I thought, oh, so that's a that's a side effect of it. And it's a way of like everyone's kind of on the same page. When they get there to the event, we're all there to just learn about how we can help our patients and do better. Um, And interestingly, after the very first conference, um, the feedback was actually mixed. So I think a lot of people signed up because of Mosley's name, but I think a lot of people were expecting more of a technique driven event. So I did get a fair number of complaints of people feeling like they hadn't learned Clinical applications of pain science. That was kind of the tagline. Um, and, but I think it was more because it was one of the first pain management conferences that dealt with topics like um, uh, working with uncertainty in your patients and clients, observing your biases, the importance of an interdisciplinary pain management team. Uh, one woman talked about working with refugees. And I think these are topics that just weren't really being covered, if at all, maybe by one or two speakers at conferences, but not the whole event. So um, the following year actually had a lot less people sign up because they saw that, oh, I'm not going to be learning techniques. And now, and then in each year after that, it just became more and more and more people signing up, right? It's, and now a lot of these topics are, are a lot more commonplace. And so when I was starting out with these Because not too many people were bringing them to the forefront in pain management, clinical pain management, it was it was very hard to sell. It was very hard to sell and fill the seats because of that. But now it's a lot easier as people see the importance of this, you know, of the psychosocial aspects of pain. Because there's plenty of conferences dealing with the bio, and you know, techniques and and formulas there's so many already you know do we need another one of those (laughs) but we don't have a lot that are talking about um things that we can address that we don't have to be psychologists to 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 look at the social psychosocial aspects of um you know one of one of the speakers uh he did like a short little session led a session on one of my online conferences during the pandemic and he was um he was a bringing in the patient perspective. And he was like, you know, he's actually in Australia. um, But he said at the clinic he goes to, they actually have a community board with resources of like, um, you know, community resources and support groups and stuff. And he's like, just seeing that in the clinic made him feel like this is the clinic. When he first went for his first visit, he's like, this is the clinic for me because they obviously are trying to support you in your, you know, in your care and just that simple act of having this board, you know, that's, that's supporting the social aspects of pain management. And it doesn't require any fancy, you know, anything. And it's interesting because a lot of these things seem like common sense, but they're just so hard to implement. It's not, you know, especially things like validating your patient or listening, um, being consistent, uh, a lot of those things it just seems like common sense but it's not really
0: <laughs> yeah common sense which is perhaps a bit uncommon not so or, common <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and not explicitly taught and I feel that that's where the value is in having the those discussions and I, I'm sure if it's if I'm correct it's Trevor Barker and I'm sure you wouldn't mind it is doing Trevor a shout Barker I, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, he's awesome and he's been on our podcast as well and yeah, that, he's I think a great guy yeah, the, the I, I love the the focus um, and the, the the honesty that you have of. What, there's so many other technique modality driven courses tools that you can look at that focus on on the buyer and, and perhaps a, in a more passive way. And and what the Pain Summit does is is bring in. Uh, holistic picture and, and maybe a bit more reflective thinking so it's a bit deeper than just the surface level mm-hmm. techniques I think that people yeah are, there's are nothing wrong to.
1: with that mm. again there's nothing wrong with that at all but there's just so many events already um, covering those things and then you know as and the summit has I'm, I'm it's been important to me to keep an open mind about the event and really listen to what people are talking to um, during the talks because I don't want to be the event to become stagnant and just be sticking to one thing. So it has grown, you know, in um at the 2017 conference, Gilletta Belton was talking to me about how um she would like to see more patient led. She wasn't talking about my conference specifically, but she was like, ah people need to bring in more patient led panels and stuff." And that gave me the idea to have the patient panel in 2018. And then also in 2018, Mark Milligan gave a talk, and in his talk, he asked the audience, um, how many of you have heard of the um, social social aspects of pain care, Um, social determinants of health? And just under half the room raised their hands. So I was like, ooh, we need to be including a lot more of that stuff in, Um, because it's not you know, as a clinician, of course, you can't control where your patients are living, but you can be aware of where they're living and things like that. And I think um, people get hung up on these are things that because they're outside of our control, we can't do anything about them. But I think just understanding them can help validate the patient's pain probably. And and there's evidence to show that just validating your patient's pain is extremely helpful. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm going to have Melanie Noel next year talk about that. And she's going to talk about the research and then she's going to demonstrate the wrong way and the right way to do that. And we're going to have role playing in the room. So so that'll be fun.
0: That's awesome. It's um, talking about all the, the bigger issues that can really influence the, the outcomes that we have and the interactions that we have. Um, and and it's I can sense that overwhelmed that we can't really change societal cultural historical issues that are happening right now but there is still things that we can do and um it's nice to see that there is a focus on the pragmatic practical elements whilst acknowledging that it is quite a deep issue um Mm -hmm. and the so on top of the the example some of the um the thought leaders and, and asking some questions uh that target some of these uh, psychosocial and, and deeper issues another reason that i attended personally was for meeting people that i've been following online for a while and and, and networking collaborating with people so um could, could you expand a bit on on that the the value of of connecting with other people in this space i've known you had you've had some uh really interesting researchers that a lot of physios, EPs, uh, clinicians, massage therapists have hadn't really uh, come across before, but they're like world famous. Could you share some perhaps stories, examples?
1: Yes. Um, yeah, so I have had uh, several over the years, I've had several of the researchers tell me how happy they were to see how clinicians are using pain research in their work and Another really interesting aspect of the summit is that most of the speakers actually sit and listen in to the rest of the conference. So even some of the researchers will, you know, come. It's not, a, it's not really a research conference, so I don't really attract a lot of researchers coming to attend, um, but they do get the chance to attend when they're coming to speak. And a lot of them find it very interesting hearing what clinicians are talking about. Um, how they're using the research. And as, you know, as far as just the networking and connections, there have been a lot. So there's a um, Facebook group called exploring pain research and meaning the guy who founded that got the idea of starting it from attending the San Diego pain summit. He wanted to create a space where we could continue these kinds of conversations. And now it has over 22,000 members. And then, um, somebody saw that i was uh someone saw that i was hosting a patient panel and so they contacted the international association for the study of pain and they were like hey um you know san diego pain summit did this patient clean the voice (laughs) why what they told me was they said why aren't you doing this and so they did they they put together a patient panel for their 2018 conference in boston and um, which led, which ended up leading to, on a sideway to the group, um, the Global Alliance. Um, I wrote that down actually. Uh, Global Alliance for Partners for Pain Advocacy, of Partners for Pain Advocacy, or GAPA, um, that actually was developed from that one person contacting them and saying, "Hey, this is what the summit's doing." And so then they started doing that too. So, uh, oh, and then also uh, Ben Cormack and Adam Meekins, they actually met for the first time in person at the San Diego Pain Summit. They both happened to teach a workshop and they actually came up with the idea for the Better Clinician Project while they were hanging out there. And I've heard of other clinicians who have collaborated there, starting there, collaborated and ended up writing papers uh, together, so it's just just you know, and, and and people making connections and meeting people, and um, you know that does happen at the summit. And I and I hear a lot of times at conferences people don't feel like there's real networking or connections can be made, but I think it's because the summit's pretty small. Um, the room will only fit you know 160, 170 people, so it's not going to get much bigger than that. And um, I was. I was actually considering growing and hiring a team and like making the event bigger. Um, But then I had um, uh, Melanie Noel came and spoke once and she said that she's spoken to a room of thousands of people and that it's so much nicer to be in a room where you can see everybody's faces and how you can make these connections with people that seem more intimate because the event's smaller. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna make it bigger, I'll just keep it small.
0: Thank you to Melanie, if she's listening, because I think that I agree that intimacy is possible and the constraints uh, allow for more interactions, whereas you can get by not speaking to many people at all if there were a thousand others around and it can be quite uh, intimidating. So as from N equals one, that's also my opinion that the, the, the conference can help uh, facilitate discussions a lot more when it is in that uh, number range. And there is, it's, it's so fascinating and really cool to hear the, the invisible kind of connections that happen uh, before and after and like in between talks. And Emily, my partner and I, we had amazing discussions in, during dinner. And I think that's uh, one of the things that a lot of people have given to you as feedback, that the, the networking, the drinks, the, the discussions uh, before and after the talks also are so important and often overlooked, I feel in a lot of CPD courses and events that that reflection time and connection is actually legitimately amazingly helpful and needed and useful uh, for solidifying not only the knowledge, but also the, the further connections and ongoing knowledge and growth.
1: Yeah, and um, uh, I did a qualitative survey, Ronnie Thompson helped me with the wording for qualitative survey to find out if the summit was being helpful at all for people in their professional capacity. And I think I sent it out to around, this was a couple of years ago, I sent it out. So it was sent out to people over three years of conference, three or four years, so about 300 something people. And um, I got about 120 something responses, which I didn't think was bad. And most people, that was one of the common uh, threads was that they really liked what they were learning on the stage, but it was during the breaks and the after event and before event meetings and discussions was when they really were able to dive deeper and using the information in their clinic. They could trade stories and talk about how, you know, they did things and stuff. So, um, yeah, that was, that's, that was a common thread of, of that being so invaluable for people.
0: And, um, getting kind of involved in qualitative research that's a shit ton of participants so well done whatever you did that's that's a good response number (laughs) and
1: well I had a I had a I had a drawing to to attend the next year's conference for free so uh, (laughs) so you have to give something I learned that when I had my massage business because surveys are so useful in helping improve your business but people aren't going to fill them out for nothing they want you have to give them something to give them a little push
0: yeah yeah and I've heard you have a, a passion for for marketing could, could you tell us a bit more
1: yeah so I'm like I, I'm one of those weird people that I used to love ads like magazine ads and commercials and um when I was when I was 12 and 13, I had a business card collection. I was fascinated by what people decided to put on their business cards. Back when business, that was the big thing back then was business cards, you know. Um, But yeah, I've just always loved marketing. And then, um, you know, during my my 20s, I had spent some time like camping and hitchhiking around and I I learned how to crochet. So I crocheted hats and bags and that's how I made my money to eat because you don't need much money if you're just living camping out so that got me started on the whole like mark like just doing my own thing uh, doing my own business or whatever and um, but yeah I've always enjoyed marketing and so yeah which made it easy for me to have my businesses because I had a massage business in Huntsville Alabama and then I came out here and had a massage business here in San Diego
0: these are these are essential skills that are also not taught I feel in, uh, in school for um for healthcare professionals. So, from what you've seen, if you could offer some um advice for uh marketing, kind of pain science informed practice to to clients, to potential clients, and uh even maybe some helpful tips or what you've found can work well with marketing sharing. Pain science informed practice to colleagues as well.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, people clients aren't gonna know what pain science informed practice means. Like they don't know all that lingo. All they know is that um, you know, they connect with you, they're gonna choose people that they connect with. And one thing that's good to do is just see what your competitors are doing and how they're promoting themselves, and then figure out a way. The, something you have that they're not using that you can use to promote yourself with. And um, there's a, a friend of mine or acquaintance of mine, who's created something called like the depositioning statement. And it's a, and it's a little exercise you do for looking at your business to determine, okay, how can I come up with something that shows that depositions my competitors, but shows that I have, you know, so it's like this little process thing that he, and he actually has a Facebook, page. I think it's called Depositioning Masterclass or whatever. Um, so that's just a little shout out for him. Or you can just Google probably Depositioning Masterclass or whatever. And that's a really good um thing that he's created to to kind of a process to take you through that. Um, and then also just take a survey of your clients and find out like why, you know, what made them choose you what did they like about your service that, that other services weren't offering? Cause that can tell you a lot too. So when I moved here to San Diego, you know, I was huge into continuing education. I took from all the big greats in the massage world, you know, at the time. And, um, so I had all that listed on my website and it turned out a bunch of my clients were looking at that here. Um, cause in California, the massage training, isn't really that great. I don't know about right now. So, but, but, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was really almost non-existent. So, um, I mean, it existed, (laughs) but it was really bad training. Like it was, you know, in some, in some cities in the state, you don't even have to go through training to get to open up a massage practice. But um, so I started having clients telling me, Oh, I saw the, continued the training you had and it made me think you were more serious about your so you know so i started using more of that like focusing on you know i've had this certification or whatever um, but it's not going to be the same for everybody that's the thing so you know that works well for me but that may not work well um for somebody you know in another state so it's important not to think that somebody else's success can be copied it can't be it's always a combination of luck and just trying out different things <laughs> and seeing what works uh, another thing too i see in the massage world i'm sure it happens in the exercise world is um people feeling overly competitive and um, like there's too much competition but the truth is if you take a look at your client files and look at the amount of clients that you have that keep your business afloat and keep your income going it's not going to be that many, so I did, I looked at my, I remember taking out all my files, and looking at the clients who came in weekly, bi-weekly, and monthly, and those were what I considered my core, and then there's a, there's, and there's a lot of others that come just a couple times a year, something like that, I didn't count them, and I was only, and there were only like 47, and that was that was enough of the core that made me a decent income and kept my business going. And so it was really interesting to see that's not that many people. So um, that, that and I don't know if that would help you be better in business, but it was just something I I noticed that people freak out about competition, but and not realizing that they don't need the, as many clients or patients as they think they do in order to get by.
0: I think that that's a good point. I think there's a rush to to grow and, and to get everyone all at once, and there's a maybe a, it's helpful to reflect on how many uh, clients you would need, and that would be very much dependent on the individual and the, the clinic context that they're in. But very helpful to know that there's no one formula, and we need to uh, collaborate and find out from our uh, raving fans, as they say, and find out mm-hmm. wh- why they chose us in the first place, and it. <laughs> I, I can definitely reflect on my own experience where the answers that they had were completely different to what I thought mm-hmm. <laughs> they would say, and uh, yeah, broke some of my biases. So I think that's a very helpful um, tip and advice for people to ask, get feedback, mm-hmm.
1: and and ask and and ask deeper in deeper ways too, because you may hear, oh, my friend so and so gave me your information that doesn't tell you why they came in to see you and so if you press a little further they may say something like well after they gave me your card i went to your website and then i noticed you had a lot of training and you seem more serious boom that's the reason why they come in you You know what i mean so you you gotta learn to ask a little bit deeper questions um, about why they're coming in because the the first thing they say may not be the full story
0: such a great point Um stealing notes myself on this <laughs> guilty of not asking a further question. There I actually
1: a- I actually ran a um business consulting business. Um at one point I had my massage business. I had my consulting business and, it, and I was focused mostly on social marketing and website optimization. Um and I had the summit. And so then I closed <laughs> so I had those three going. So I closed the um Massage business and I had just the two, but the consulting business was starting to get busier. And I was, I was like, well, if I keep going with this, it's going to cut into my time for the summit. And the summit is more important to me because I feel like I'm really giving back to the community with that. Um, and I'm also in a privileged place where, you know, we have a family-owned home, and my partner makes a good. He makes. The income that we need to so i don't need to make a living off the summit um and i think the reason why i can get away doing what a lot of other events can't do is because i don't need to make a living so you know i'm not beholden to advertisers or sponsors or uh committees or whatever i don't have to i don't have to change things because of polit- internal politics or you know all that so so I'm pretty privileged to be able to do it. I'm taking advantage of it because these are topics that really need to be discussed and brought out.
0: I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's an important thing to consider uh, when it comes to uh, choosing some courses and, and events and, and conferences and uh, acknowledging that there are uh, overheads to cover and um, that there's different incentives as well in both the clinical practice space and healthcare, as well as the organization of events and in, in, in all uh, kind of decisions that we make, that's important. And mm-hmm. if, if we go over to, for, for colleagues, for clinicians, what you've found helpful, because um, I, I make mistakes all the time. Um, and I think it's so easy, even myself, when hearing, you know, you uh, know, all these buzzwords of pain science informed practice that um, it, it can be confusing. It's it's not the same language that we're kind of taught. Um, so it could could you tell us more for, um, stealing selfishly personally, like how I can better market kind of the, the courses that we do, but yeah, what, what have you found helpful to connect with a wider range of clinicians and, and um, uh, speak their language when marketing the pain summit?
1: Yeah. so. It took me many years to figure out how to effectively promote and market it because um, pain science is, ai don't know if it is still now, but it was a really loaded term at one time. It caused, triggered a lot of arguments (laughs) on social media. And really it's just science behind pain. I mean, it's not, it's just a short way of saying that, you know, Um, but I think what I've, what I've learned is, um, you know, the research shows us that the more money we spend, time and money we spend on something, the more we feel attached to that thing. So when you have clinicians who have spent a great deal of time and money on training programs, um, and and this is mostly on social media, I'm not sure about interpersonal interactions, but people get very defensive. They start, if you start talking about, um, you know, maybe a science-based, um, clinical work or course, because they, it's like, they feel like you're saying that their training and education was worthless. So, but you're not, you're just saying, you know, here's, here's additional information. So what I learned to do, um, was say that, you know, You know, you think about, um, you know, as a busy clinician, you don't have time to wade through mountains of research. So the San Diego Pain Summit is somewhere that you know you can come, and the research is going to be valuable for your practice, and it's going to be, you know, it's it's validated because I, you know, I really vet out the speakers and everything. So um, it it has been a lot of work figuring out a message. Because there's so many things that are triggering about this information, (laughs) and also another thing too.
0: So much of what we're taught.
1: Yeah, exactly, Mm. and that's what and that's what the hard thing is. And then also, there's not really enough of of people showing what this looks like in the clinic. Like, what does this look like? I, Paul McCambridge gave a talk on the, I don't know if you've watched it, but it's on the, it's on the, it's on the YouTube channel under the playlist for the 2021 SD virtual pain summit. And he gave a very interesting talk about the need for that because when patients or clinicians go online searching for continuing education, whatever um, they, they, they find the videos and content. That's just not very valuable, but it has the most hits and searches and maybe they have a good you know seo on their team and copywriter and everything um but we need to create more content where clinicians can see what does this look like you know what does it look like when you're validating your patient what does it look like um you know when you're asking your patient if they have what their social supports like at home Um, Again, common seems like common sense things, but I think if they're not shown that those demonstrations, they're not going to see how to use it. Um, So yeah, it's 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 been really tricky marketing (laughs) the San Diego Pain Summit for sure. It's getting easier as the years go by and more people are um, aware of the content. and And don't be afraid to give out content for free. So. Um, A lot of people have signed up because I release the videos free on YouTube. And that's how people see, and that's actually one of the biggest uh, mistakes I see business owners make is that they think, oh, if they see this content I have for free, that's everything I have and blah, blah, blah. But it's not, you're a creator. So, but what it does is it shows people what you can do. So, um, you know, just, I would definitely Free content is good to give out because it shows people what you're doing, what your classes are like, Um, you know, and giving, giving out like an hour of content for a class that's two days is you're not, you're not, you're not doing, you know what I mean? It's just such a small amount. You're not, your business isn't going to be adversely affected because you're doing that. It's more, what's more likely to happen is that people are going to watch it and want more, you know?
0: Love that. I think we need more role models, examples of what mm-hmm. this kind of practice looks like. I think uh, uh, otherwise it's kind of hidden behind jargon that people don't really understand. But it's, if it's an actual lived example, then we can kind of, it, it speaks a thousand words, a video speaks a thousand words. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really important. And we've also hosted Paul McCambridge and, and the team at Back to Roots. So, yes, highly recommend as well checking out the YouTube channel. So San Diego pain summit. If listeners type that into YouTube, they should find Mm -hmm. some of your free content. It's
1: actually youtube.com backslash San Diego pain summit is the URL.
0: Awesome. And for the final question, um, we talked a little bit about some of the the issues that um, have been uh, talked about and introduced to a lot of allied health professionals. What, what are some examples of topics and, um, Problems that should be given a bit more of the spotlight. And, and I love that you, ha- you have a, a conference and a context for these discussions. What might what be some examples?
1: Yeah, I'd like to. So, there's so many things. <laughs> One of them is I would like to see more um, patient partners being incorporated in training. Um, I think, you know, interestingly enough, Uh, there's a lot of pain conferences that don't, they don't think that, um, people with a lived experience actually bring much value to their event, or they think, um, or it's like a fad, right? So everyone's doing it. So let's do this. But when it comes down to it, they really don't put a lot of importance on the patient, um, or people with lived experience, um, so I'd like to see a lot more of that in training because they just give that they're the experts <laughs> in their pain. I mean, I think I posted this on Twitter the other day that you know clinicians are the experts in studying about pain, but then you know the patient part advocates are the experts in pain <laughs> living with pain. And um, and I tell you, any uh, any talk I bring in of the patient perspective. Which I feel like the wording probably isn't appropriate, but it's just the best wording I know right now. But um, those are always the most popular talks, all oh, hands down. Oh, it, those are the talks that on the evaluation form will be so many people, all fives across the board, you know, one out of five. Um, and then people are writing about how they didn't realize that it, it changes how they work with their patient. And so if we brought more of that into actual, the training programs and in the, in the schools and stuff, I think that would be a really good start. And then also, I, I don't know about Australia, but here in the US, I think it'd be great if we focused more on interdisciplinary pain management teams, because um, again, there's evidence to support that uh, the inter- interdisciplinary team is more effective than just one you know, and, and I'm not, you know, maybe it's policy change or what, I know there's a lot of chest stuffing that goes on between professions, um, but I would like to see a lot more different professions working together, and that's kind of why I have the summit, is interdisciplinary, because I've had people come up and, t- and say things like, wow, I never, you know, I never considered, having a massage therapist on my team or, you know, something like that. So i I think that would be a good idea if we could have more of that here in the States, particularly, I think in Europe, they are in Canada, there are, I'm not sure,
0: but yeah, there's, I think there were definitely OTs. There was, I think a, a dentist or, or, and from memory this year, you could correct me if I'm. Yeah. There um... was
1: someone, there was a, uh, he was a, he was over here doing a fellowship. A dental school and he was like he's like they have no idea what you're doing down here (laughs) it's crazy you know because i told him i was like you know what's funny is that he's a dentist coming is that um there is a paper called pain in the neuromatrix you you heard about that paper it came out like 10 15 years ago or something
0: the neuromatrix model comes to mind
1: yeah, yeah neuromatrix model yeah And the only place i could read that was from the um american dental association journal that was the all that's they had it free free access you could read the full paper on their site so i thought that was very interesting
0: yeah i think that the the presence of other professions breaks the barriers because otherwise we don't hear about how other people will practice or what it's like and then we can experience in a first person kind of lived experience as a participant oh wow we're kind of using very similar language and and models and frameworks and we can all collaborate and there is that sense of community and collaboration cooperation that we don't see in other contexts much unfortunately mm-hmm. and i can speak for australian context as well so yeah, I, I love the the two points you made that really shining a light on the lived experiences and that patients are the experts in their pain and we can um like really value that. I think qualitative research is one of the ways that can be helpful to shine a light on what it's like, the the first person experience and, and yeah, collaboration and interdisciplinary team approaches is, is needed. Rajam, this has been a super helpful talk. I've learned a lot myself. So stealing a few points for my marketing. But um,
1: <laughs> I should be charging you, huh? <laughs> you should send me the I'm invoice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, for the listeners who are keen to find out more about the pain summit and information. We've mentioned the YouTube channel, but tell us more, where where can people find out more info? Uh,
1: People can go to SanDiegoPainSummit.com. There's also a link to the YouTube channel there. Um, And I also host a couple online classes. I have one coming up in October I'm hosting, um, which is a narrative medicine workshop. And then I'm in the works of hosting another one that I can't really announce just yet, but we'll hopefully be able to soon. Um, and then there's a contact form if anyone wants to get in touch with me I also have all my socials on there I'm on um, Twitter at San Diego Summit Instagram at San Diego Pain Summit Um, my Instagram account is more for like the back what goes on behind the scenes of running a conference (laughs) whereas my Twitter and Facebook is more like sharing you know valuable information and, and sort of that sort of thing
0: and there's some really cool presenters coming along to the 2024 with the lineup. Yes.
1: The 20, the lineup has been posted. Um, the schedule has been, it's, it's not a detailed schedule just yet, but that's also on the website um, for the, so you can see who's speaking on which day because people can sign up for all three days or just the two days, the Saturday and Sunday. Um, the Friday will be for people doing interactive sessions, kind of like, many many workshops um yeah and that's uh, that's on the website and the schedule should be posted probably by early to late mid-summer um i'm cl- right now i'm getting all the titles and synopses and all that stuff in right now so
0: amazing super excited and some really big names there so highly recommend the listeners to check that out
1: yeah and if you're on twitter um i do have a list of all the san diego pain summit speakers and workshop instructors so like Twitter has become hard to find people and stuff because of all the changes that have been happening there recently. But a lot of clinicians and researchers do use Twitter and I have all the, the workshop instructors; they're all on a list. It's called like SDPS speakers, instructors, and you can just follow that list and follow everybody who's, who's been at the event, speaking at the, has spoken at the event.
0: Yeah, and you got, I think three Aussies from memory. There's Tasha Stanton, uh, Aiden Cashin, and Felicity Braithwaite, I believe. So yes,
1: yeah, because because um, coming. yeah, I mean um, some of the uh Felicity's actually spoken before on the online conference, and a couple of speakers for next year have spoken at the online conference, but that was an online conference, and they have new research out. So, um, yeah,
0: amazing, Rajam, thank you so much for for sharing and. and- gained a lot of insights and it's nice to hear the the story behind one of the best paint summits I feel in the world highly biased I really appreciate it keep up all the amazing work you're doing It's, it's really needed in our industry and until the next time
1: thank you I appreciate it thank you so much